On this episode, I'm in the room with Nancy Ortberg discussing the difficulty of finding God when life is hard. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 37. I'm Ryan Hughley, and if you're listening for the first time, I'm the founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. You can find lots of ways for you and I to stay connected online by visiting my blog at ryanhughley.com. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. In the Room is your opportunity to eavesdrop on my conversations with interesting people. Each week, I sit down with people of varied backgrounds, perspectives, and vocations. So I talk with pastors, professors, authors, and artists about their stories, their crafts, and how they do what they do. On this episode, I'm in the room with Nancy Ortberg. Nancy currently serves as the Director of Leadership Development at Menlo Park Presbyterian Church in Northern California. She's a leading voice on the topic of leadership, and she's written a number of books. Her most recent is called Seeing in the Dark, Finding God's Light in the Most Unexpected Place. And that's what we're discussing today. In my conversation with Nancy, we cover why God allows us to walk through dark seasons, how God means them to produce joy in our lives, and why it's so crucial that we fight for faith in community. By way of disclaimer, Nancy shares a very personal story in this episode regarding one of her own dark seasons of life, in which she's very honest about some strong language that she used as she wrestled with God. I found her honesty so refreshing, as some version of these thoughts often fill all of our minds. That being said, this may not be the best episode to listen to with your kids running around. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I did. Now get comfortable and come on in the room for my conversation with Nancy Orberg. Well, Nancy, thanks so much for coming on In the Room. I really appreciate it. It's great to My have pleasure. you. My pleasure. And you. Uh, love the new book, Seeing in the Dark, and want to get to that in just a few minutes. But for people who may not be super familiar with you, I'd love to talk a little bit about your story. So if we could just start at the very beginning. And uh, where were you born? I was born in Los Angeles, California. I am a second generation LA girl, which is unusual. Yeah. Yeah. And did you live in uh, California? I know that you guys are back in California now, but did you live yeah. the majority of your life there? The only time I ever left was the nine years, the nine winters we spent in yes. Chicago. You mark yes. everything by winters. I do. I understand I do. that. My mom oh. is from San Diego in the same way. Exactly. So when did you then come to faith? You know, pretty young in my first understanding of what that meant, yeah. probably eight or nine years old, I was at... Um, my grandmother's church, and uh-huh. she was a very strong spiritual influence in my life. And there was just something about the story of Jesus that made sense. And then I think, you know, throughout my life, I've had what I would call reconversions. Sure. But it started pretty young for me. Okay. And so did you grow up then in a Christian? You had obviously some legacy, but were you in a yeah. Christian home? Uh, kind of half and half. My mom was a believer, and my father was not. Okay. Uh, he became a believer the last three months of his life. Wow, that's awesome. Um, yeah, he was an alcoholic, but a pretty nice alcoholic. Like I, you know, <laughs> I guess if you have to, to have ten, one, yeah. Yeah, I mean, on a scale of one to ten, he was probably a five or a six. The more he drank, he actually got funnier or okay. fell asleep. So there was no beatings or anger. There was a yeah. lot of fighting between the two of them. Right, And right. I think they, they split up for one year when I was eight years old, and that was pretty traumatic for me although I don't think I knew it at the time. And I think there was a, an occasional sense that I wasn't alone, hmm. that as I began to understand the story of Jesus, I put the two together and thought that must have been what I was experiencing even at eight. Okay. Yeah. So then um, 
a lot of people know your husband as well, John Ortberg, mm-hmm. and uh, that you guys are both uh, serving in amazing capacities in ministry and have for a long time. So how did ministry come to be for you? When did you meet John? How did that whole thing happen? Yeah, well, they kind of collided. So when I started college, I also started volunteering probably five or 10 hours a week at my home church with high school kids. Really okay. loved it. I mean, I was all of 19 years old, so yeah. all the wisdom I had to bring them. That's right. It's my gift of sarcasm. Yes. Uh, and then when I was in grad school, uh, I'm sorry, let me back up for a minute. When I was in college, I was pre-med, okay. uh, loved medicine, hit inorganic chemistry, wow. and thought, yeah, this is not going to happen. Yeah. So I switched to nursing. I picked up a minor in speech communications. I then told my father um, I wanted to switch my major again to Christian education. Now, remember, this is a dad that does not have faith, and I right. can't use the words that he used, yeah. but there were many words, uh, some of which <laughs> referred to the Lord. Yes. And it was really one of the only times my father ever told me no. Wow. And he just said, it's not marketable. I have no idea what that means. So I stuck to nursing. I graduated, and then I paid my way and started attending seminary part-time while I worked as a nurse. And where was that at? Uh, L.A. area, Orange oh, County. Okay. Yeah. And so when I was in grad school, I actually met John on a okay. blind date. Wow. Yeah. Those don't usually go well, so that's well, great. Well, and that's why I almost didn't go on it. Because yeah. I told my friend, I have been on three of them, and after the final one, I swore them off. Yeah. Said I would never do it again. Yeah. So one more time, but then I actually moved to Chicago three or four weeks after we met. So we only went out a couple times, and then it was long distance for a while, and we dated other people, and... So when you came out, when you came out, like when you guys were, had been on a date at that point, was that yeah. to work at Willow? No, no. I was still in grad school. I was single. Oh, okay. I was going to finish my seminary degree at Trinity Seminary. Oh, got you. So went out there for two semesters, hit winter and said, wow, who, who would do this? So yeah. I came back home and John and I kind of picked up from there. So you guys got married. Did you start, were you doing ministry at that point as a couple in California? Oh no, my the ministry work that I was doing, or what I would what I would prefer to call church work, because yeah. ministry is so many things. Yeah, um, I it was all on a volunteer role. I was working as a nurse. Um, we lived in Scotland the first year we were married. Wow. We came home. I worked as a nurse again. We had kids. I stayed home for a few years. It really wasn't until we went to Willow uh-huh. that anything that resembled a career path in church work uh, okay. began to open up in a significant way. Yeah. So then, in addition to writing, tell me a little bit about what ministry and or church work looks like for you now. What all, I mean, in just reading your bio, you've got like 10 balls that you juggle. Sure. So what, what do you consider what you're doing now? Yeah, I, I would say I'm kind of a reluctant author. Um, I have, for the past 10 or 11 years that we've lived in California, been a consulting partner with Patrick Lencioni and the Table Group. He's Excellent. the guy that wrote Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Great books. Which Every leader should read. Yeah. Absolutely. So I and a couple of partners, uh, we work with corporate clients, education clients, and nonprofit clients, and we use his framework. It's very transformational. I love doing it. Yeah. Um, and then I work two days a week at our church uh, doing leadership development, and that's been the last um, 10 or 11 years. I just got hired on uh, last week as the CEO of a nonprofit organization out here in the Bay Area called Transforming the Bay with Christ, Excellent. and I will be starting with them full-time in a couple weeks. That's great. What does leadership development in your church look like those two days a week? Is it mainly one-on-one mentoring? Is it training and teaching? Yes, it's it's all of that. Um, I think the woman that's coming in after me is going to do an even better job than I was able to do of systematizing it. Okay. But when I started, people were not even understanding what that concept meant. So we had to kind of start 
from a whole a little bit, do a lot of one-on-one meetings. Um, we put together what we call a management academy. So that second level late layer of leaders once a month would come for a two, two and a half hour session that was interactive. Um, and then I also was responsible for a couple years for running our all staff meetings. So when everybody came together, how do you set tone and culture and training that way? So I think it's ready to take its next iteration. And I think the woman that's coming in now will just take it to the next level. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, how much of the Lencioni stuff makes its way over into your leadership development and ministry? Is it pretty about transferable? A, about 112%. Yeah, I figured that. Yeah. I mean, it's, what's so cool about the model is even when I go into corporate, I tell them we're not industry specific. So if you need somebody that's really smart in software, we're not your, we're not your people. We're leadership specific. So if you're having trouble with the team, right. what Pat is so brilliant at is getting clarity around how do you build a high-performing, cohesive, high-functioning team that doesn't have dysfunctions or doesn't have as many? And then how do you get organizational clarity just around a few things, five or six things? And then how do you integrate the two of those together for really magnificent results? Yeah. So outside of his books, anything else that you'd recommend, especially for ministry leaders or anyone that wants to grow in their leadership? That's a tough question. I know there's a lot of good ones. There are so many good ones. Um, I just finished reading a book recently called, um, oh, I'm going to forget the name of it. It's by Failure. It's called Failure of Nerve Okay. by Edwin Friedman. He's actually a Jewish rabbi. He passed away a handful of years ago, but he takes family systems theory and applies it to organizations. Okay. Uh, I think that's a great one. I think, an, again, an older book, Erwin McManus's Unstoppable Force. Yeah, it's a good book. Is what the role is of the leader to be a cultural architect in a yep. postmodern world. And that's when I speak at conferences, I will tell people if you only have enough money to buy one book, don't buy mine, buy that one. Excellent. It's really good. It Those is. are two of my favorites. I could go on and on about that okay. one. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, tell me a little bit about uh, what this new book, Sing in the Dark, like what. What gay? I know how much of a labor of love it is to bring a book into the world, um, and so what was it that gave birth to this for you? What what burden you know caused you to write this book? That's a great way to put it. I think there was something that was going on in my life, and has been you know there have been different moments like that all yeah. throughout my life. So it was personal, but it was also you know I'd watch people that I cared about go through these really hard times, and you read scripture, and there's so much of that in scripture. What do you do? How do you find God, follow God? How do you wait when there's no light? Yeah. Or there's only a little flicker in the distance, or there's only enough light for you to take one more step when you want the big picture of how yeah. is this going to be okay? And that's not what you get. Yeah. Well, so, if, you had to, if you had to summarize like the big idea of the book in just a sentence or two, or what it is that you're trying to convey, any sense of how, how exactly would you do that? I think it's, it would be the last sentence I just said is when life is difficult and it feels dark, how do you find God, follow God, or wait with God until there's enough light to move forward? Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Well, if I, I found so many of the stories uh, in the book so heartbreaking, and mm-hmm. uh, um, but even even through that, the book is filled with hope, and I think that that's great. And well, so, I think. I'm sorry to interrupt, no, but I think you just landed on the, maybe that's a better premise for the book, is um, I've never met a person of deep character and deep faith that hasn't gone through hard times. Sure. Um, but the ironic thing is there's hope in that. You yep. don't know that initially. Yeah. But if faith doesn't work in those moments, then it's not real. That's right. It doesn't count. Yeah. It doesn't hold up. 
Yeah. So what you find in those moments over time is gold. Yeah, that's right. One of the things I sensed that you were arguing throughout was that oftentimes joy comes through the pain. And eventually, so, sometimes. E- eventually, hopefully. Yeah. Um, and, and so I was just curious as to why you think that is and how does that happen? Yeah, I think that is one of the, maybe next to banana cream pie, okay. is the best proof for the existence of God. All right. Like, how can there be in such devastating pain, initially moments and eventually an infusion back in of your life? Maybe life's not the same anymore, but there's a return to a, a, some kind of joy that doesn't make sense if there's not a God. Yeah. It, it's not... It, it would be just confusing yeah. or, or fake. Yep. And I think it really is part of teaching us what the nature of God, God is. What I would say is um, part of my journey has been, is God good? Yeah. And I think there are people that struggle with, is there really a God? Sure. I mostly struggle with, is he good? Yeah. And the older I get, I'm finding that the way I'm actually learning that has been through these hard times. Yeah. And that when I hit bedrock, I eventually find after my spinning is over that he's really good. And one of the things Dallas Willard used to say that I love is what sits at the center of the nature of God is not his holiness or our obedience. That if God's holy and he's not good, then we should go the other direction. That's right. But at the center of who he is, is he is good. And then because he's good, he's holy. Okay. And so this is partially a journey to find out, is he good? Because if he can't be good when life is hard. Yeah. And it doesn't count. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I tell our church all the time is that <clears throat> we have to have fixed in our minds and in our hearts that God is both sovereign and good. Because yeah. if he's just sovereign but not good, that's not exactly. good news for anybody. But if exactly. he's good and not sovereign, then he can't really do anything about yeah. the mess of our lives and the mess of this world. So you have I to have both that. of those things. I think that's really well said, too. That, that'll that stick in my mind today, and I will roll that one around. That's that's it. Yeah. So that's what it. do you think, you know, for many people, these dark seasons that we go through, they don't equate to joy. They don't mm-hmm. ever get there. And so what do you think the difference is there? Like, what mm-hmm. are some of the necessary factors for pain to produce joy in our lives? Yeah. I think the simple heart of that question is you have to go there. Okay. You have to go to the dark places. Mm-hmm. You can't sit on the surface and you can for a while because sometimes the pain's just so much you have to for a little bit. Yeah. But eventually you have to make the decision that I'm going to enter into the danger zone. Yeah. I'm going to go there and I'm going to go kicking and screaming. I'm going to go mad. Um, there's a page in my book. I don't even know what page it is, but okay. I fought with Tyndale over it pretty significantly. Okay. And there's a time when I'm on the beach <clears throat> and I'm mad at God. Okay. And the way that I needed to write it, and I understand this, uh, was very whitewashed. And what I said to God was, you are a shitty shepherd. Okay. You're a shepherd, all right. But my adjective for you right now is, you're a shitty shepherd. You're not a good shepherd. Mm-hmm. And then I started saying to God, do you understand? Do you like the alliteration? Do you like the SH in both of the words? Yeah. Kind of sings on my, my tongue. And I repeated that phrase for an hour up and down the beach. Yeah. And I think growing up, I would have been told, don't ever, 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 ever do that. Yeah. And I think God was saying, keep coming. Keep coming. That's it. You're on the right path. Keep coming. Yeah. And that was one of many places I had to go that felt scary. And it wasn't it wasn't a moment where I said that and then everything returned to joy. That was one very dangerous, scary step towards the center of the pain. Yeah. Because I had to find out if God was in the pain. Yeah. 
Sorry to interrupt the conversation, but I wanted to share a simple way that you can help support In The Room. As you know, most weeks I'm talking with someone who's written a book about something. Now, I love books, and I know firsthand how expensive it can be to try to keep up with all the books that you'd like to read, including the ones that you hear about on this show. And this is why I'm so excited about our new partnership with Givingtons.com. Like Amazon, they sell books at discounted rates, but here's what's great for In The Room. When you buy a book through our store, we receive a portion of that sale to help continue bringing great weekly content. So for whatever featured book we're discussing on this week's episode, we receive a full $2. And for books from past episodes, we receive $1.25. Now you've probably heard me say this before, but I want to help get this podcast to as many people as possible, and I need your help. So will you keep spreading the word on social media, and will you consider buying this week's book through givingtons.com? Just go to givingtons.com slash in the room. There you're going to find not only this episode's book, but books written by past guests as well. So check out our new store at givingtons.com slash in the room. Thanks so much for your help. And now back to the conversation. Uh, well, in addition to joy, what, I mean, what do you think? There are a lot of good things. I mean, you just said a few minutes ago that you've never met, never met a per- person of genuine faith, mm. uh, of strength, of character that has not gone through hard times. So what are some of the good things, albeit painful, but what are some yeah. of the good things that God does produce out of painful mm. situations? Mm. Perspective. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think when you're younger, and you hit a crisis, you think it's an eight or a nine on the scale, and then you get a little older and you think, oh, that's reserved for yeah. a child dying or something really. And I can move now my pain into the right place. Yeah. And then I live my life better because it's in the right place. I think empathy yeah. in really profound ways. You know, in the first chapter of, it's either First Corinthians or Second Corinthians, it says, we turn around and comfort other people with the comfort God has given us. Yeah. So it makes me able to enter into somebody else's pain. Um, it makes me more patient and able to wait, which I suck at. Yeah. When, so now when the next hard thing happens, I'm still scared. I'm still mad. Um, I'm still not clear on what's going to happen, but I can wait better with God in it and sense his presence with me. Yeah. Um, and in a sense, Ryan, all this is preparation for death. Yeah. You know, it's getting us ready. We have a good friend, Steve Hainer, who passed away last year, tragically too young, and one of the things he would say in his most buoyant moments was, I've been preparing for this my whole life. Yeah. And I turned to my husband and I said, you need to do a sermon series on preparing for death. He's like, how come you keep telling me what sermon series I need to do? Because <laughs> yeah. this is what I do. Yeah. But it's like, we don't talk about that. Yeah, how do true. you prepare and get ready to, to walk well with God in whatever it is that's yeah. going to happen? I'm reading a book right now. Um, I'm drawing a blank on the name, but it's about raising boys. Oh. And... Uh, and, How many uh, do you have? I have two. I okay. ha- currently have a five-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old and then a seven-year-old daughter. Okay. Uh, but one, I thought it was interesting. One of the, the author was talking about four or five chief characteristics uh, that you need to you know, kind of ingrain into your boys. And surprisingly, mm. one of them, and I just hadn't thought of this, but one of them was helping them understand that they will die. Oh, um, who writes and, that in a book? That's yeah, so I don't profound. Know. I know. And uh, so I was really... disturbing. It is. Yeah, it is. I mean, I'm not talking about that quite yet with my two-year-old. Uh, <laughs> but I think preparing them for that reality, I, that would have yeah. never crossed my mind. 
And uh, I thought that was interesting. I also thought when what you were saying a few minutes ago, speaking of Erwin McManus, uh, I will never forget. I might've said this on the podcast before, but I once heard him say at a conference that God wants to turn our misery into ministry. Mm. And uh, I think that God does use suffering, dark seasons, difficulty, sometimes as a way of commissioning us for ministry into a particular brand of brokenness. Does that make sense? Oh, and we all know that. When we're in pain, you can tell, oh, this is not the right person to be telling my story to right now. Right. You can see it in their eyes. And then you come across somebody else and you think, oh, this is my person to tell because they've been through it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that note, I mean, so many people have a tendency to keep their difficult seasons either in real time or even in hindsight, the things that they've been through to kind of keep them inside and yeah. so we don't talk about them. Some people right. bottle them up and keep them to ourselves. So two, two questions in that. Why do we do that? Mm-hmm. And then why is it so important that we do share our stories? Yeah. Or we add that chirpy, oh, everything's going to be great because God's right. in it. Right. But we don't really mean it yet. Yes. Um, well, could you say those questions again? Uh, so why do you think that there's that tendency to kind of bottle up what we've been through? And then why is it on the other side so important that we don't do that and that we do yeah. share it? Well, I think the first answer is shame. We're okay. ashamed. Yeah. And I think, you know, Brene Brown's TED Talk on that is stellar. Yeah. Um, you see it in Genesis where the very first time Adam and Eve right. broke relationship with God, just reactively, the next thing they did was they hide. Yeah. Rob Bell writes in his book, um, What We Mean When We Talk About God, that he went with a friend to an AA meeting and sat there and said, this is church without the bullshit. Huh. So I think the answer to the second question is, um, churches need to be better places. Yeah where we don't have to come and put that plastic smile on our face and we can come to our groups, to our services with our pain and our joy and realize that in any given room, there's going to be people who are having a very wonderful time in their lives right now and other people who are devastated and hundreds of people in between. Yeah. Um, And then I think we have to take the risk to to say uh, life's hard right now. Well, what do you think as far as, so a lot of ministry leaders, pastors, planters listening to this, um, as sort of the chief culture creators, mm-hmm. if you will, in our churches, what are some really important ways that we need to lead the charge in creating mm-hmm. the types of yeah. places that you're describing? That's great. Well, the first one is go first. Okay. You have to be vulnerable. Yeah. You have to be the very first one that does it. And appropriately so. Sure. You know, the first time you meet with your new staff, you probably won't tell them the hardest thing you've ever been through in right. your life. But you could start with a time that's happened in the past. Yeah. And just you start you start uh, creating an ecosystem where that is part of the fabric. We're going to share our joys, but we're also going to share what's hard. Yeah. We're going to share them appropriately. Yeah. We're not going to become a therapy session every time we meet because we also have work to do. That's right. And um We're going to accept and listen to people, but we're also going to help them bounder their conversation. I might be talking to a staff member who's really going through something difficult, and after a few minutes, I can tell they'd like to go on and talk about this for two and a half hours, but I'm their boss. And so I might have to say, I want to come back to this. I hope you're meeting with a counselor. I hope you have other friends. Right now, we have to put the clutch in and now talk about your volunteer development efforts, but we'll come back to this. And I love that because that's sort of a holistic view of, that's my life. Yeah. That's my life. I've so seen as a leader, how do I build into them yeah. like that? We, we do it at our church. We're a young church, six years old, and mm-hmm. uh, we do a preaching lab where we're trying to develop young you know, preachers and communicators. And I've seen 
uh, a direct correlation between the impact that our developing preachers have and their growth in being vulnerable as they preach, um, which has been pretty interesting that no matter how hard they work on, um, by God's grace, for whatever reason, my dad would still say this, that opening up with people's never been, it's, it's a, it's, that's not a difficult thing for me. I'm really thankful for that. So my dad used to say that I'd like be sitting on the park with strangers just talking about whatever was going on inside of me and um very refreshing yeah but uh but for people that i've seen that really struggle with vulnerability for any number of reasons you're like i i don't think i've seen too many things that inhibit a person's ability to connect as a communicator or a leader like an inability to be vulnerable i think that's so well said I think that's so well said. Um, it's a little bit like a wild animal that's scared to come out. Yeah. In a conversation, I might only say one thing. Like you may be, you may have told me something difficult, and then you've stopped, and you're not going to say anything else. And I would just look you in the eye and say, "I get that. I've yeah. been there." Yeah. And then maybe that may be the only little crumb I hold out for you that day. But yeah. eventually, over time, your vulnerability will coax other people out yeah. into the light. Yeah. Into the light. Yeah. And part of the answer to the second question too is, as as pastors and preachers, we're about life transformation. Yeah. And it goes back to what you just said. Life transformation has to be happening in us, yeah. which then causes us to be comfortable in our own skin and able to be vulnerable. Yeah. And then it allows us to be very present with somebody else, yeah. not to have to have their answers, but to be able to be very empathetic. Yeah. Well, I think that there's a connection to make here too. In our, I think that, that sometimes we think that we will bottle up our difficulties or pain mm. in our relationships, thinking yes. that that is not going to infect our relationship with God. And so or I really... relationship with people. Totally, yeah. But yeah, I like you, you talked about the way that this bottle up can happen with prayer and worship. And so you write about the importance of, of lament at one point which I really appreciated that chapter and how the Psalms are filled with lament. So more lament than praise. Absolutely. And there's a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations as well. And uh, so, so define lament for me and like what that is for people that I don't want to assume that everybody knows what that is. And then tell me why, why are we so bad at that as we just don't have very many songs um, or scripture readings in services that involve lament. So what is lament and, and why is that something that we really struggle with? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think lament is raw grief. Yeah. It's just raw grief. There's no, there's no hiding in it. And you know, we create church services that are chirpy and happy. Yeah. And, and and that's not all bad because sometimes I go into church and I am happy. And then if you throw me six psalms of lament and six songs that bring me down, I'm going to be thinking, right? okay. Yeah. So I think there has to be over time a vision for variety that's good. in our weekend services yeah. that helps teach people how to use moments like this. Today may not be your day for lament. Yeah. But there are people sitting next to you, and it's their day, so be gracious. Yep. And then learn from this moment how we're going to take you through it. And sometime in your life, you're going to need this. Um, I think we don't tell stories where things aren't finished. We only tell stories when in the rearview mirror, everything's wrapped up in a bow. Yeah. How do we tell people stories when they're still in the middle of, I don't have my answers yet. Yeah. Um, and how do we not put pressure on people to say Christianity means having my life together? Yeah. And me being on top of everything. What's so ironic is you read scripture and it's head scratching how we yeah. got from what scripture says 
yeah. to the version of Christianity you and I are just describing. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, if, if the gospel doesn't teach us anything, <laughs> it's or if it teaches us anything, it's that yes. we're not okay and uh, uh, that we do yeah. need a savior and yeah. that we do need help. So that's just like, it's pretty yeah. central to the whole thing. It is. Um, and I do think like back to the title of the book of Psalms, it's kind of ironic that it's named praise, but the proportion is much higher on lament. Yeah. I think that God is saying the way to praise is through lament. You yeah. can't authentically praise God yeah. until you've gone through times of lament. Yeah. So, can you speak to, just for a second, um, you, you mentioned uh, the necessity of believing that God's good and that yeah. that's what we're wrestling through or wrestling mm-hmm. with through so many of these seasons. So, to the, a person who might really be uh, in one of these dark seasons, mm-hmm. um, how... It kind of that that old question of of how does a loving God allow yeah. these types of things to happen? So, what would you say to the person who is right in the midst right now of struggling to believe that God's good? How mm-hmm. would you encourage them as someone who has been in that very spot? The first thought that comes to my mind when you're talking is just, and this is not new with me. It's um, we live in a broken world, yeah, and the broken world is also part of what does it mean to have free will? Yeah, and you can't have love without free will. So you could, there's a, there's a whole obviously discussion that's really important there to understand. God isn't causing this. God is not happy with this, but he has given us this wide berth of freedom so that we can be in a relationship with him that's built on love. The other thing I would say is it's, it's looking during the day for those moments of joy, beauty, wonder, awe that break through maybe only for three seconds, maybe only for two minutes in the middle of your raw grief and then you have to ask yourself the question, how much power is in that little tiny piece of joy mm-hmm. if it could even for 30 seconds free me from my prison of grief right now? Yeah. That's, a, that's a philosophical question that yeah. begs an answer. Yeah. That speaks to the strength of goodness, that at the end of the day, that is stronger than the bad stuff. Yeah. I think that one of the things language-wise that were topics doctrines, whatever you want to call it, that we're the worst at with Christians is the whole will of God thing. We talk about God's will. And so we need better categories. And I think Christians learning to separate that, that God essentially has, you know, two wills in a sense. Mm -hmm. There's the sovereign will of God in which, inside of which, like nothing happens outside of God's sovereign will. He is in Mm -hmm. control. But God has a moral will, which is what God wants to happen as well. And so I think when people say things, you know, when we're muddy on that language, we can't look at rape, we can't look at abuse, we can't look at war and murder and these injustices and racism and say that those are the will of God. Um, I mean, God has allowed in his sovereignty those things to take place, Mm -hmm. and no one will ever understand all of that. And, uh, but I think that we can confidently say that God has a moral will, things he wants to happen. And yes. those are not things that God wants to happen. Absolutely. And so I think having better clarity in our categories and the way that we talk about them, especially as pastors, I think is really, really important. Super well said. One of the other things I talk about in the book is in the chapter in John where it says Jesus wept. The, yeah. word, the Greek word used there is such an unusual word. And obviously, Jesus is not crying about death because he knows what nobody else knows is in two minutes, he's going to raise right. Lazarus from the dead. Right. But it describes the flaring nostrils of an angry horse. Hmm. He is angry and broken that people, because he's looking at the people that are mourning for Lazarus. Right. 
he is he is devastated over the fact that he created a good world that was perfect yeah. and this is now what people have to live through yeah well what um what uh any any resources that you would point people to um let's let's start with mm-hmm. like people who themselves are struggling so aside from your book which you know there's there's other books that have broached yes. these topics but yours yeah. is is very very well written and uh so i would definitely encourage people to pursue that but any other resources for people that are kind of right in the thick of this right now that you might yes. point them to Yes. Um, Nicholas Walterstorff wrote a book a few years ago called Lament for a Son, okay. which will tear you open. It is so beautiful. Um, Gerald Sitzer wrote A Grace Disguised okay. when he lost his wife, his mother, and one of his children in a car accident and then had to nurse two of the others back to health. Ugh. And then um, a more recent book by Christian Wyman, who's the editor of Poetry Magazine, called My Bright Abyss. Okay. I couldn't put it down. Okay. And there's this, and he, it, all three of them do this lovely weaving of devastating loss, raw grief, and hope, and joy, and God. Yeah. That's great. And, that are just remarkable. All right. Well, I'll make sure we link those up on my blog. Thanks. Um, so I, I would say, uh, kind of in, as a closing question, I think that one of the more difficult things to do, the only thing that might be more difficult than, um, than being the person walking through the difficult difficulty or dark season is being a person that's trying to walk through that season yeah. with them. Yeah. And so like, I'm not, I'm not sure in, in the midst of whatever it was that was sort of the, the impetus for you writing this book, that mm-hmm. difficult season. I'm not sure how John did walking through that with you or friends, but what would you say are some keys to walking through seasons of difficulty? Well, yeah. with other people. Well, the first thing I would say is it's a different kind of hard. Okay. Don't ever say, this is harder on me than it is on you. For sure, don't, don't, say don't that. ever say that. Right. Because people have said that. Yeah. Listen a lot and yeah. listen fully attentive, not okay. formulating what you're going to say next. Yeah. Because really, there will be some times where what you say is a comfort. Um, those will be less mm-hmm. than the very act of ministering by listening and presence. Yeah. And then when you've done that and you're away from that person, what's your long-term light-touch strategy to stay in their lives? A gift card, a note, a phone call, a question. Questions are great. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can't do it for everybody. Andy Stanley has that great phrase, do for the one that you can't do for the many. But who are those people in your life that you are committed to walking through the journey with them, not just the moment of crisis? Yeah. Because that's when the crowd comes together, and that's good. Yeah. But then the crowd has to go home. Yeah. They have to go back to their lives. So if you're among the few, um, how do you do that? And, and then just to authentically pray for them. I'll put a post-it note in my car for a month and just put one person's name on it. Because awesome. I'll forget to pray for them if yeah. I don't. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. All right, lots of wisdom there, Nancy. Thanks so much. The book well, really is excellent. And um, I know that you called yourself a reluctant author, but I'm I'm really glad that you've reluctantly written because this is a great book on a much needed topic and uh, very much appreciate you. So thanks for coming on. And God bless your church. I will pray today for its flourishing. Thank you. I appreciate that. You're welcome. My thanks to Nancy for taking the time to chat and to you for taking the time to listen. As always, I hope you found it helpful. Don't forget you can stop by my blog at ryanhugley.com for all the ways that you and I can stay connected via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll also find any additional show notes that you may want from today's episode. Until next week, I count it an honor to learn with you. I love you, and thanks for listening.